0: Welcome to Astrophiles, where the universe is your playground and space is accessible to everyone. Well, welcome back to Astrophiles. I'm super glad that everyone's back joining us for our second episode. I'm glad to be back. It's been, it's been a minute since we recorded our last episode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> life.
0: Yes. <laughs> life only a, a deathly illness. <laughs> Nothing major.
1: We survived. We're good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you're back with me Kimberly. Um, and today's topic is super interesting. We'll be covering um, CERN, but in particular the uh, Large Hadron Collider um, in that CERN has built. So I'm excited for this topic.
1: Definitely, definitely. Okay, so for our podcast, we have one person doing a lot of research and the other person sort of just reacting to it because these are really uh, interesting subjects. And this week, Mickey did all the research. So I will be uh, giving my thoughts on on all the interesting stuff.
0: Very cool. I'm excited. And I have to say, doing the research for this episode, I've learned so much about what CERN is and what the Large Hadron Collider is, so I think this is going to be really interesting. I'm curious to see what your questions are too, kind of coming in cold to the topic.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Cool. Well, I'll just go ahead and jump right into it. So first of all, uh, what is CERN even, what is that acronym? So it actually stands for the European Organization for Nuclear Research. Um, So obviously, I mean, that acronym is just the like, non-English uh, equivalent of that term. So it really is a European organization um, that focuses on it, not just nuclear research, but really particle physics, which is pretty interesting. Um, I learned that this place is in, uh, it's a massive facility in Geneva in Switzerland, which I didn't know either. So that's pretty cool.
1: They like bananas on their pizza there. Oh, really? So, I didn't. Yes.
0: <laughs> cool. Have you been before?
1: No, I haven't. It's on my list. So I've done a lot of research about it. And I've heard about the banana pizza, which they swear by and I am going to try it. So
0: (laughs) in fact, I'm allergic to bananas. So I will not be having
1: (laughs) the Swiss banana pizza. (laughs)
0: Uh, And to be honest, it sounds maybe not it sounds feeling. terrible.
1: <laughs> it might be good, though. I'm going to reserve judgment. Never know.
0: That's true. <laughs> good. That's a good mentality. I like it. Um, cool. Well, uh, at CERN, when they're not eating banana pizzas, they are figuring <laughs> out <laughs> what the universe is made out of and how it works, um, which is a big undertaking. Um, uh, but just as some background, so I learned that CERN was created um, in 1954. So for some reason, I thought this was a new organization, like from the 90s or two thousands. and that's not the case. That blows my mind, actually. <laughs> well, and so it was created in that time frame. Um, and some the founders kind of started working on this a little bit before before then, but 23 um member states, most of them are in Europe. Uh, came together to fund the creation of this facility. And it really came about because in the forties and fifties, there was what was called a, a brain drain in Europe where basically the best European physicists were imported to the States um, to deal with uh, working on the Manhattan project and ultimately fighting um, against the Nazis. And so to prevent that, like all of the, you know, the greatest minds from Europe leaving the, um, The part of the mission of CERN was to have a safe place for European physicists to continue working in Europe and not have to leave. And that's part of why it's located in Switzerland, uh, because it's neutral.
1: Wow. Wow. And I didn't know it was tied to the Manhattan Project. I guess that's intuitively, that makes sense, but.
0: Right. They're like, stop stop stealing our best physicists to do the Manhattan (laughs) Project. (laughs)
1: Uh, And I'm kind of curious. I'm like, I wonder
0: what I didn't research. I didn't really consider it till right now. But I wonder if people like Einstein regretted, you know, leaving Europe after all, once this facility was created, if they're like, dang it, (laughs) that was my opportunity to stay.
1: Well, I know with the Manhattan Project that uh, they did tests and they said that they just immediately regretted it. They felt like, and these are scientists, but they said they felt like dark forces were unleashed and they just felt so unsettled by it I I got to read some of that actually at the museum and and it was that's and it stuck with me because it was just their reactions were I don't think that they themselves were expecting what they got you were referencing the nuclear museum in Albuquerque um well this was a an exhibit over at the art museum actually but very cool nice
0: yeah I I feel like if you Kind of can put yourself in their shoes of you know on the one hand it's super exciting research and you're literally inventing things and discovering things like that must have been very exciting for them but to have the end result of their work be you know visionable <laughs> like fission reactions I think that was that must have been really scary yeah and to witness
1: it the way they did they were just totally they were freaked out for sure
0: yeah, yeah. Totally reasonable. Well, I think a lot of, you know, physicists who wanted to do explore kind of nuclear research, it's kind of, it's perfect, right. That CERN came about so they could do that in a, in a way that wasn't, um, tied to the Manhattan project, which was really paving the way at the time. It's actually on the CERN website. They specifically say that they founded the CERN facility, um, with a, an agreement across all of the member states that they would not take any kind of orders from any government or align to any military strategy and that they would openly publish all of their findings. So it's sort of their whole mantra is um, you know, doing research in, that isn't intended to be weaponized and, and provide the results to everyone. So everyone in the world will benefit, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah. That's, that's much better. Yeah. <laughs> much better <by> me. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: yeah. And kind of, I guess, along those lines, um, really cooperation across amongst different countries and scientists was that driving force for creating it. It was the main reason why it came to exist was because instead of, you know, countries fighting against each other and inventing, kind of n- nuclear type uh, capabilities. Um, CERN's focus was let's explore that together cooperatively in a non-scary way. <laughs> um, yeah. So in terms of like how many people work there, it said um, I when I was doing the research, their website said they have pretty much 2,500 direct staff members who work at the facility, which is kind of a lot. Um, but 12,000 scientists from 70 different countries work to analyze the data that's gathered. So the 2,500 staff are supporting the experiments and, um, equipment and facilities in the control room and all of that stuff. Um, but it takes this much larger community of scientists to actually analyze the data that they collect over years of experiments.
1: Wow. Wow. They have like their own sort of ecosystem going on over there. (laughs) Yes. So what made you're like hitting the nail on the head. So part of um
0: on the CERN website, they said like what are their other their main accomplishments? And I think what most people know them for is discovering the Higgs boson uh field and particle. But way before that, they said kind of that whole like ecosystem network that you're speaking to, they actually were the ones who invented the World Wide Web because they needed a way to transfer data, you know, decades ago, (laughs) transfer data. Across different researchers and universities in different countries in Europe, so they actually created the web.
1: (laughs) That is mind blowing to me. That's so mind blowing. I never connected the dots at all. And actually, I'm a curious person, but I've never looked into where it came from. Like I remember growing up, and and I'm getting older, but (laughs) I remember, you know, like when it came about, and you had you had um, dial up and and all that and. Uh, Some of the first things that I did was play games online. And of course, everybody went into the chat rooms online, but I had no idea it was connected to them. So,
0: right. Yeah. When, yeah, like thinking of in the 90s when you're (laughs) like a (laughs) a sketchy 14 year old in some AIM chat
1: room typing ASL, you can thank Kern for that experience. Well, see, I would always like get into those chat rooms and just pretend to be a totally different person. So that was what my 14 year old mind was like, Oh, cool. I'm just going to pretend to be a bunch of different people. (laughs) Oh, same for me.
0: I was <laughs> probably like twelve, catfishing people,
1: like saying like, oh, my "Who knows who we Roxanne. were even talking to? Like, like, we don't even want to know." <laughs> <laughs> oh, so sketchy. Thanks, sir Yeah, <laughs>
0: thanks, Cern, for a core traumatizing childhood memory. <laughs> um, yeah, so another thing that they developed, so kind of the the running theme here is they needed a way to transfer files. So they created what became the world wide Web. They needed a way to simply interact with um, their experiments. So they created touchscreen technology, which no way yeah, we use <laughs> everywhere. so it it seems like they keep they have this pattern of also like in addition to discovering cool physics stuff. They also are inventing infrastructure that they need to do their jobs. That becomes infrastructure for the world, which is pretty cool.
1: Wow. Okay. I wonder how that, I'm just curious about the logistics of how that works. Like, So they invent the technology and and then they get it to everybody. I'm going to have to look into that later if you don't know how how that came about, because that's really interesting. So I'm like, do they make money from, obviously they probably make money and then, does it go back into the experiments or it's, those are really good
0: questions I don't know if they patent that or because they broadly publish their results I don't know if they just put it out there like as an open source sign sort of thing um or if they patented their work but private companies maybe just tweaked it and created their own proprietary version of a touch screen and then they don't give any money to CERN I don't know that would be a good kind of cool interesting thing to follow up on for sure
1: Yeah, I'll look into it and then I'll update everyone on our next episode.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that'd be awesome. I love it. (laughs) Cool. Well, um, I remember um, hearing about, you know, the Large Hadron Collider and the Higgs boson. And it was really interesting doing this research and figuring out like kind of exactly what was going on, what they were trying to Um, discover and how the the Large Hadron Collider works. So I just figured I would um, walk us through what that even is. Yes. What those terms mean in reference to this um, facility and then I'll talk through kind of um, the the logistics like the technical aspects a little bit of how that works Um, and then we can move on from there into maybe talking about some of the particle physics research that they're doing. Um, but just starting with the Large Hadron Collider. So I guess CERN has been around for a long time and they've had many, um, different ex- accelerators, um, in colliders in their facility, but the Large Hadron Collider is the most recent one. And it was created, I think I want to say in 2008, uh, yeah, September 10th, 2008. Um, but I'll just talk about, you know, that's probably a term that if you're not familiar with it, it doesn't mean anything. So, the Large Hadron Collider is the world's biggest and most powerful particle accelerator. And so we'll get into what a particle accelerator is here in a minute, but just breaking down each of those words, it's called the Large Hadron Collider because it's a large, <laughs> it's <laughs> massive, it's 16 miles, over 16 miles in diameter. So that it's a massive, massive. That's insane. I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm like, what? That's actually not at all what I was I mean, I've seen pictures and I did not. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah,
0: totally crazy. And I think if you see a picture of part of it in the tunnel or whatever, it looks, you're just seeing now, knowing that it's 16 miles in diameter, you're just seeing a tiny little corner of it. <laughs> and it doesn't really clue you into the scale.
1: Wow. That really puts it into perspective in my mind. So yeah. Humongous.
0: And actually they reused this tunnel that they had built for the previous accelerator, um, which was called the LEP. And that thing, um, when they built the tunnel, they they built it kind of starting, um, if you can picture, it's a circle, giant ring. And so if you picture a gigantic ring, they started like building it, um, touching two points, let's say at 12 o'clock on the face of a clock. And one team built the tunnel going um, counterclockwise along the ring. So they went from 12 o'clock to 11 to 10, et cetera, with the intent to meet at like six o'clock with the other team that went clockwise and the tunnels, when they met at the six o'clock location, they were, the tunnels lined up within, I think it was one centimeter of each other. (laughs)
1: I'm like, what? (laughs) Incredible.
0: I'm like, they can't even paint like, straight lines on roads in america no.
1: <laughs> i just snorted at that
0: let <laughs> oh, alone right digging a giant underground 16
1: mile tunnel and having well, they crazy. can't even finish construction in five years <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah i feel like if Swiss- the switzerland can put together the 16 mile ring and like, perfectly what is up with i forty? <laughs>
1: oh I feel like this is just too good a story not to tell because one day I was driving down I-40 and a tire was bouncing across the interstate (laughs) and I've never seen anything like it and it looked like some sort of movie or something and it hit the ground and then it would come up like several feet it was just bouncing across the interstate and thankfully it didn't hurt anyone and then it bounced off the interstate and I don't know where it went from there
0: (laughs) oh my gosh that's so scary So deep, it was
1: scary because I was actually approaching it, (laughs) so I was like, I'm gonna slow down, but you know, you can't really slow down very much there because someone will smack you.
0: So, wow, that's really scary! Um, like you're lucky it didn't come right at you, yeah, or hit your car. Could you imagine? I mean, you'd go
1: it missed me. And then I felt relief and then it bounced over to the other side of the highway. And I was just Mm. like, really hoping it didn't hit anyone. Unfortunately, it just went right off.
0: (laughs) Wow. That is scary.
1: I bet that doesn't happen in Switzerland. Yeah.
0: (laughs) No tires go flying (laughs) off a vehicle.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, I don't know where it came from. It didn't even, I have zero idea where it came from. Obviously it was like from a vehicle or something, but I didn't see it come off the vehicle. It just sort of was (laughs) bouncing through the highway. Mm,
0: Maybe someone was like doing it intentionally or through, I don't know. like a scary, wow. Classic (laughs) I-40. And that is just
1: one day in a commute in Albuquerque. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. How funny. (laughs) Um, Cool. Okay. So uh,
0: let's see. 16 mile in diameter, ginormous ring. That's why it's called the Large Hadron Collider. So that was part A. Part B, Hadron, what the heck is that? So it basically um, uses that term because the accelerator accelerates protons and ions, which are called hadron particles. Um, So basically an accelerator can only accelerate certain types of particles. They have to be charged um, because the beams are manipulated by um, devices that only influence charged particles. And then um, they also have to be stable. So that really limits the number of particles this thing can even work with. And um, it basically brings you down to just electrons, protons and ions. And then they're antiparticles, but in a circular accelerator, which the Large Hadron Collider is circular, obviously it's a ring. Heavy particles like protons um, have a lower energy loss per turn through this ring um, than electrons. So really, it the accelerator only um, uses big, big particles, and so that brings us just to uh, protons or ions. But again, those are those are hadron particles. So it's a large hadron. And then a collider, part C of the term, it's called a collider because um the particles form two beams that travel. Um they're like clusters. I guess when I say a beam, I'm talking about like, let's say we're they're accelerating protons, they cluster together. Millions of protons together into a beam that they can basically shoot down this tunnel um, in opposite directions around the ring. So let's say they start at six o'clock, they would shoot in opposite directions. So one going counterclockwise, one going clockwise, and then they collide when they reach each other at noon on on the ring. Um, and so it's obviously called a collider because they're smashing these particles together on purpose to convert mass to energy. So if you're familiar with e equals MC squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, um, they, this is basically what they're exercising there. They're colliding particles in beams at extreme, well, pretty high speeds, but high energy. I
1: think it's just mind blowing to me, honestly. It's mind blowing to me that the structure exists, that it was built, and all of it.
0: Yeah, like I'll talk about the magnets in a little bit here that that make the beam, the particles move. But even just harvesting the particles and getting them to like extracting, extracting the protons, getting them to cluster, that in and of itself is a huge
1: challenge. <laughs> and so, if, like it's it is very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, yes, I have so many questions, but, but go on. Yeah. because
0: Well, you can <laughs> I ask. Definitely. We can do a question pause.
1: That's good. <laughs> just so curious about all of it. Really. I guess, I guess I, this is what put them on the map in terms of like global awareness of them. And then it's just crazy because They actually should have been put on the map for other, other things that are, I just don't think anyone's aware of the web thing, but this they are. And the web thing, I always, I
0: always heard some story where it was like Harvard or Stanford or something that developed it. So I feel like maybe I didn't do research into this part of the story, but I'm like, I wonder if they were just part of the university network that was getting data from certain. I don't know. That would be good to know. Um, Maybe that's wrong, but I always heard it was like an American university that created it. So obviously <laughs> that was a lie.
1: <laughs> yeah. A lie. It's I'm gonna definitely look into that because yeah. but I do I'm I guess I'm curious about these magnets and yeah and like how did they where I don't know. Just go on about the magnets. <laughs> yeah, <'cause,
0: laughs> sure. The magnets are a big deal. They're like the main part of how this whole thing works. So we can talk, we can do magnet talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So I mentioned the ring is, um, over 16 miles, um, in diameter. So if you picture the 16, almost 17 mile ring, it's basically a ring of superconducting magnets, um, that have what are called accelerating structures along the way to boost the particles energy as they're traveling, um, in opposite directions through the ring. And so if you look inside of the Large Hadron Collider, um, these two high energy particle beams travel at close to the speed of light before they collide with each other. So in order to get them to have, um, you know, to boost their energy, basically the superconducting magnets are used. So the beams travel in opposite directions in different pipes on each side those pipes are kept as ultra high vacuum. So if you think of like outer space, for example, it's a vacuum, they're mimicking that condition inside of these pipes. Um, the particle beams travel around the rings, um, because this hugely strong magnetic field, um, is, is basically, uh, exists around each side of the ring. And so, um, they're superconducting electromagnets is what is what the things are called. And so an electromagnet. magnet, I had to look up what that was. They're built from special coils of electric cables. And these coils um, are really operating in what's called a superconducting state, which means that they conduct electricity without causing any resistance or loss of energy, which is key in order to get the particles to move. So it's also part of why I think electrons aren't used because they would lose um th- i mean they would experience resistance so they have these heavy uh, p- um protons uh clus- clustered together into the beams and um the coils the electromagnets are cooled to be colder than space so they're super chilled basically cryogenically and so it's a combination of that vacuum plus the cryogenic cooling that creates this you know, if you can kind of call it, let's say frictionless environment for the beams to travel fast. And then the accelerating structures are different magnets, um, types of magnets placed along the way that cause the beams to accelerate faster. Um, Yeah. So they use helium, liquid helium to cool the magnets down super, to be super, super cold, colder than space. And then they also use the liquid helium to cool the equipment. So the supporting equipment doesn't overheat. Um, Wow. So it sounds very
1: dangerous, actually.
0: <laughs> it is, and it creates radiation. So it's that's part of why they built this underground in the first place. Um, the first part was because they. It's hard to get. It's harder to get um, permission to acquire land and build on top of land than it is to build under the ground. And since they are generating radiation, it also makes more sense to have that buried under the ground. So you're limiting the exposure um, that people, like everyday normal people plus employees, get um, to the, the radiation sources.
1: Wow. Wow. So it's insane. And how do they monitor what's happening in there?
0: Uh, I assume computers, yeah. but. So yeah, that, that they have control centers. So in, in, in terms of like operating the equipment, they do tons of preventive maintenance. They have control stations and then particle detectors that are placed to detect what particles, um, exist when they're smashed together. Um, and then for radiation, They use dosimeters, which basically are measuring the radiation dose, like ionizing radiation dose that anyone nearby is receiving. So they have really strict limits as to how much radiation um, employees can get exposed to and normal people like civilians walking, let's say, on the ground above the facility. And so that's all very, very strictly monitored and enforced. And if someone happens to be nearing their um, much lower radiation dose that CERN, sets than what the actual limit is. They'll rotate them off the project and bring someone else in and just really take care of their people. So they're not That's getting screwed. uh, so the helium I mentioned is used to cool the magnets, but there are thousands of magnets that are used different types, different sizes. And those are again, just directing the beams around the accelerator ring. And so. There are what what are called dipole magnets. So those are the ones that you and I are familiar with. You maybe played with them as a child. Yeah, Both. definitely. <laughs> they have two poles, right? So it's like they either repulse, repel each other or they are attracted to each other. And there are over 1,200 of those magnets in the ring. Wow. And that section is nearly 50 feet long. And then, so what those do are bend the beam. So obviously this is a ring. Um, so the dipole magnets are used to, to bend the beam in a kind of, uh, you know, cir- circular fashion to go around the ring. There are quadrupole magnets, which, um, like the dipole magnets have two poles Quadrupole have uh, four poles and there are almost 400 of those. Each one of those are 15 to 20 feet long. So huge. Wow. <laughs> Gigantic magnets.
1: magnets. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like an like something as a kid. If I heard it, I would be like, I want to work on that. <laughs> yeah. <like giant> <laughs> I was obsessed with magnets as a kid.
0: So yes, they're so fun, right? I mean you could have had this career of placing giant <laughs> magnets inside an underground <laughs> ring in Switzerland.
1: It would have made sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool.
0: And so what those ones do is actually focus the beams so they don't scatter and, and fall apart. And then right before the point of collision, there's a different type of magnet that's used to squeeze the particles closer together. So that increases the chances of collision. So if you think about clapping your hands, um, being a collision. The last type here is basically someone coming and pushing your hands together while you're going to clap. So it makes the impact um, even higher, some more energy at impact.
1: And did they build like a test run of this. Did they do something much smaller before they just, or did they just go for it?
0: Uh, that's a really good question. I don't know if they build like a mini experiment. I think they do test their equipment to make sure like the detectors especially are functioning because if they do this experiment, and the detectors aren't detecting, then it's all for nothing. Um, yeah. So I think they pay a, a huge amount of attention to the detectors to make sure they're functional.
1: Yeah. I guess it's, I remember, cause I remember the news when they were doing this whole thing and that was another, I think that was also a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> but I've lost track of time in my life. Um, but I remember the news when they were doing this, and it was a huge deal when they were like assembling it and putting it together. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, it was a big deal. It came online in 2008, but they started talking about it in the, in the 80s. I remember my mom worked at a public library when I was in elementary school, and I remember there was like a a specific section of like a bookcase that had kind of what like new books in the library. And I remember when I was maybe in fifth or sixth grade, um, there was a book there on oh this idea of a large hadron collider. It's not built yet, but what are the impacts? What is it going to do? And what is this Higgs boson thing that they keep talking about? Um, and I picked it up and was like skimming through it, but obviously I didn't really grasp it as like a, an eleven-year-old. <laughs> um, no,
1: but it's that's actually pretty quick execution when, when you're talking about something so in, like insanely detailed and. And something so magnificent in terms of, of just the sheer brain power you need and and materials.
0: Yeah. And weird materials too. They're not like, let's go to Walmart and buy these 50 (laughs) feet long magnets. It's like, yeah, hard to manufacture and get. And so to your point, um, they were actually, while they were building this, the Large Hadron Collider, they were running up against like budget issues. And so the CERN, like the entity that governs CERN, they were talking about doing a two phase um, thing where they would do part of it in one phase and then pause and get money and and continue building it. And the United States actually is not one of those, uh, whatever it was, 23 countries that participate, we're just considered an observer. So we're not like in the club. But we actually kicked in the majority of the rest of the money that they needed to, to meet their deadline. Oh, wow. um, so it, it bought us into this observer status where we can go and kind of participate and, and look at the data, but not actually, I, I don't think we contribute directly to the experiments that they're doing. Uh, but yeah, America came in, saved the day, did actually you know, something <laughs> useful for once.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's actually really cool to know. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, the particles that they're smashing together are are so tiny. I mean, yes, they're concentrated in beams, but it's basically they're on such a tiny scale that making them actually collide at the end of the ring is like you firing two needles, like sewing needles, six miles apart, with such position that they actually meet each other and touch. <laughs> That's how hard it is to get wow. the particles <laughs> to actually collide. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: And what have they learned from from their experiments? Like, what is oh, yeah. what do you think is the most major contribution?
0: Um, probably the discovering the Higgs boson particle. Um, and so that basically, so right now they're actually in July of 2022, last month or yeah, month and a half ago, they began what they're calling Run three. So they've had like three major runs or this is the third major run of using the facility and it's run three is going to go for four years and they'll collect a ton of data. But in the last run, 10 years ago, they discovered the Higgs boson particle and field, um, which I could talk about here. So I think before we jump into the Higgs boson, there's like some particle physics 101 <laughs> kind of yeah for me for me definitely <laughs> it's like a reminder I'm sure people have heard these things before but it's like <laughs> Good to maybe frame that so we're all on the same page before we talk. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No problem. Okay, so welcome to Particle Physics 101. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Basically, what what that is is the study of the very tiniest objects in nature, um, which exist inside of atoms, and then using that information to look backwards in time and understand more about the Big Bang. So if you consider mad, um, matter, like an object, a physical object or something that, that um, you could see and touch, I like to think of a cup of coffee because I love coffee. <laughs> so Who doesn't? It it is I the either...
1: nectar of the gods.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Very relatable nectar of the gods. So let's say you have a cup of steaming god nectar <laughs> in <front> of you. <laughs> um, inside of that coffee liquid. So that's, this is a uh, matter inside of the coffee is a molecule of caffeine. So that makes sense. So a caffeine is a type of molecule, just like uh, uh, water, for example, is also a a molecule H2O, right? Mm -hmm. So the molecule of caffeine is made up of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. Those are elements. And those are, the elements are, are atoms. So that is what, when I was growing up was thought to be the smallest building block in nature. And lo and behold, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) So if we think of a single atom of let's say nitrogen inside the caffeine molecule, that nitrogen atom has a nucleus inside of it. The nucleus is the, the thing inside the center and it's made of protons and neutrons. And then there are electrons orbiting around it. Okay, so if we look inside of that nitrogen atom's nucleus and take out one single proton, we find out that it has quarks inside. So that's the level that particle physics is focusing on, because everything at that subatomic particle level is looking at you know, protons, neutrons, electrons, and then the, those quark building blocks inside of them. And by doing that, we really start to understand when on this you know, big bang primordial universe through today timeline that those specific particles came into existence. Um, and we start to understand their behaviors and that helps us understand natural phenomena that we see in the universe today. Um, and so, um, I, I think this is, uh, this helps us investigate things like dark matter and dark energy, and we can do another whole episode on that. Love nerding out about those things too. (laughs) There are basically particles um, and atoms that didn't exist at the start of the Big Bang or that did exist then but don't exist now. And so the research done at CERN in the large Hadron Collider help us understand those things. So now we can talk about the Higgs boson, but I want to pause there and see if you have any questions or, or any kind of like reaction or comment to our particle physics, one one lesson.
1: <laughs> My heart is just delighted and I'm totally geeking out at everything that you explain. So <laughs> I think it's a great setup for, for whatever big news we have now.
0: Yes. Okay. Perfect. So I think that's helpful just to understand the scale, right. Of like how, yes. you get. and that's the level that they're really looking at. So, When the Large Hadron Collider does a test, each beam, I think I mentioned this earlier a little bit, but each beam consists of 3000 bunches of particles. um, And each of those bunches contain a hundred billion particles. And so you have a hundred billion particles in a bunch and 3000 of those bunches in each beam, two beams. So tons of particles. Um, and since these particles, like I was saying, like, you know, that, that tiny subatomic scale, they're so, so tiny that the chance of any two of them colliding is very small. So that's why they pack so, so, so many into a beam because they're hoping that just two of them (laughs) will collide.
1: (laughs) They're (laughs) trying to increase their odds. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's kind
0: of like, I don't know. I think of like, if you, had let's say um like a handful of pebbles and you're standing across a football field and with someone else and you're trying to launch them far enough <laughs> that they would actually touch and you're like
1: please just do <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. I bet they're pretty frustrated over there frequently <laughs> yes and what's
0: Challenging, so I'll talk about the Higgs boson here in a second. But it took them forever to discover that particle because in those collisions, it doesn't always um, that particle doesn't always come into existence at at the point of collision. So even if you do have two particles in these, you know, three thousand bunches of hundreds of millions of particles. Um, the Higgs boson doesn't even always uh, come into being, I think it's like one in a hundred of the actual particles do they see, and they can't even see the Higgs boson. It's just, so I'll get into that here in a second. It's really complicated. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they say that when these bunches cross, they can have anywhere from one to 40 collisions out of a couple hundred billion particles. And, um, the bunches that cross are about like the bunch, the bunches that cross each other, they're about 30 million particles crossing each other, um, per second. And so, um, in a second, they can have, let's say a billion particle collisions by continuous, by having such a large beam basically. Um, so it's, it's, they keep, they have a a huge beam so they can have plenty of particle collisions actually record data and not have it be like, one data point after four years,
1: Yeah, (laughs) they they
0: do it a lot. They have a huge beam, you know, these huge particle clusters. So they actually get good, good data. Um, But the beams can circulate for more than 10 hours along that ring. And they basically um, are traveling super far. Basically it would be the same distance to this particle as us going to Neptune and back. And they're traveling wow. near the speed of light in these um, tunnels. And so it, it's pretty crazy. Like they really have to get going very quickly um, in order to to reach the speed and energy required to actually collide and, and have some kind of impact.
1: So are they resistant to colliding? Is this because I'm just curious, like I'm obviously a novice, but seems like since it's such a difficult task that. Maybe they're not necessarily resistant, but it definitely is a task. Yeah. It's not so much
0: that they're resisting each other. It's just that the effort. Oh, That's it,
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> you could re-answer my question. Sorry. <laughs> um,
0: so it's not so much that they're resisting each other. It's just the complication of getting these beams packed, you know, full of particles traveling near the speed of light with the energy required And then since there are, they're just so small that the chances of collision are low. So they really have to have the beams packed, packed super full. Um, So it's just, it's mostly just a matter of there being so much empty space in between particles um, that are, that are that small, that it's just, it's hard to actually get them to line up perfectly.
1: Yeah. And that's actually interesting for the world at large too, because it just sort of seems, I don't know, it just kind of speaks to the bigger world Mm -hmm. and how we exist and
0: yeah a hundred percent agree yeah um so kind of on that note the Higgs boson particle helps us understand our world more Um, and so (laughs) this was uh 10 years ago this was discovered through one of the um, large hadron collider experiments They call it the God particle, um, which is a huge lofty name. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really called that because, well, first of all, you and everything around you right now are made of particles. Um, When the universe began, no particles had mass originally. They were all speeding around um, at the speed of light, had no mass. So they weren't slowed down. Um, And then um, stars, planets, and life as we know it could really only emerge in the universe because particles gained mass somewhere along the way. And that fundamental field that gives particles mass that enables the world around us to exist is due to the Higgs boson. And it's really hard. It was very, very hard to prove that this thing exists because it didn't come into being and we could see it with our eyeballs or even like some kind of crazy microscope or something. We could only tell it existed. It has, it has a really rapid rate of decay. So it came into existence and then immediately started decaying. So they were able to see that decay of what basically, which particles came into being as part of the Higgs boson's decay. And so that proved that it was there for a second (laughs) before it started decaying. Um, That's incredible. I know. So really, um, so the Higgs boson was um, proposed as a theory about 50 years ago. Um, And then in 2012 is when it was actually discovered. But why did it take us so long to find this thing? Someone thought about it 50 years ago. Um, but so the Higgs boson has 120 times the mass of a proton. And so it's the second heaviest particle that we know about today. But that large mass of the Higgs boson um, combined with its extremely short life <laughs> lifetime of 10 to 22 seconds, means that it can't be found in nature uh, because wow. it's, it's so large and only exists uh, very briefly. So we can only produce it in a lab environment. Basically, it can only produce it at, at in a CERN type environment. Um, but it showed us that it gave the Higgs field, um, uh, was proposed that, so there's the Higgs field and a Higgs particle, um, but the Higgs field was proposed in 1964 as some kind of field that fills the universe and gives mass to elementary particles um, that we already knew about. And the Higgs boson is a wave in that field. And it basically is saying, um, here's the wave that, that gives uh, particles mass. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so if you kind of think of light, Light is uh, a wave on the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, but it's also a stream of particles that are called photons. It's similar to that.
1: It's pretty incredible to think about really. So yeah, that's a pretty huge discovery.
0: Yeah, huge and they could only achieve it because of the high energy. So it's it's less about the speed getting to the speed of light and more about packing in as much energy as possible into the collisions. So for example, if we go back to like clapping your hands, you can clap your hands as fast as you want, but if you don't have a lot of energy, when you clap, it's going to sound muted. Even if your hands come together really quickly, if you kind of like slow them down and just touch, it won't be very loud. But if someone comes by and helps you smash your hands together, you mo- your arms might be going slightly faster, but it's <laughs> that energy at collision that matters.
1: <laughs> and that's super cool to me. That is really, really cool. Yeah. Especially if you think about the big Bang. <laughs> so yeah. It, yeah, it's just like sort of connecting the dots there. It's really cool. Totally. And and it's
0: hard, right? So like this, it's crazy to me that we can only see this field in a lab environment when, I mean, so the Higgs doesn't really affect our everyday life. Like it doesn't really affect, you know, the microphone I'm using to record the internet that we're using to connect, um, it's just so short-lived that it doesn't actually make up the matter that you and I are made up of and interact with. Um, But it's important because it helps us understand the universe um, and because it it also um, helps us answer the question of why anything has mass. So it's not making up the mass of everything we look at, but it helps us understand why those things have mass to begin with.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's super cool to me. I, I had no idea this whole time. I mean, I've heard about it just like everyone else in passing, but definitely didn't know that. Yeah. And so it was, this is also part of why, I mean, part of why they call it
0: the God particles because it caused the big bang. They suspect it caused the big bang in the beginning. So, and that had always been kind of an unknown and still is, pretty poorly understood today, but kind of what was the the trigger to cause the Big Bang to happen. Um yeah. So I think I, I mentioned they no particles had mass originally, but it's it's crazy to think that anything we interact with in the world or our universe or when we look in a telescope and look out into space and
1: all of that stuff is visible and exists because of this field. Yeah, that's incredible. That's my mind is officially blown today, for sure. <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> what I find to be the most mind blowing part of this is before, um basically before the big bang. Well, so when particles were zipping around at the speed of light, they were opaque um, and the Higgs boson not only caused everything to take on mass, but also turned everything transparent. So space was transparent, no longer opaque. So had that happened, even if we had gained mass, but the opacity didn't go away, we wouldn't even be able to see the moon. Um, and so it's really, it's kind of this crazy, it has this crazy impact on how the whole universe
1: came to be as we know it. It's like from formless to form. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah like a fashion show, a universe yeah. fashion show. <laughs> yes.
0: It's the the universe's tailor.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that actually. That's that's how I'm going to like commit it to memory.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I you know, I've heard obviously the there's been a lot of interest in the Large Hadron Collider in the news lately because they're starting their run 3. They just started that. Kicked it off a four-year run um this past July. And all I saw all over Instagram and the news um, was whether these particle collisions could create um, black holes or mini Big Bangs. So I thought that was really interesting and learned a little bit about it. And it turns out that um, the energy concentration or like how dense of uh, energy is needed in these, um, or created rather in these particle collisions at the Large Hadron Collider, even though that energy concentration is super high, in absolute terms, that energy is low compared to energies that we deal with every day um, or with other energies that are involved in collisions of like cosmic rays in space, for example. So at small scales of these proton beams that we've been talking about, at the, so again, the proton beam is at a super, super tiny, super tiny scale, these subatomic particles type scale. Um, the energy concentration reproduces the energy density that existed just a few moments after the Big Bang. And that's why, um, you know, some people refer to the collisions at the Large Hadron Collider as mini Big Bangs because they kind of are. (laughs) But when we consider black holes in the universe, those are typically created by the collapse of gigantic stars. And so those have Massive, massive amounts of gravitational energy that sucks in surrounding matter. So those are the scary black holes that people sleep <laughs> over. <laughs> uh, and it really that gravitational pull of a black hole in space is related to how much matter or energy it, it contains. So the less there is, the weaker the pull is. So if there's not a lot of energy or matter, um, in a black hole, then it's gonna have a weaker pull on stuff surrounding it. So some physicists feel that microscopic black holes could be produced in these particle collisions, uh, the Large Hadron Collider. However, if they are created, um, they would only be, they would only come into existence with energies of the colliding particles, which is basically the same energy that a mosquito has. So, no microscopic black holes that are produced inside the Large Hadron colli- uh, Collider could generate any kind of um, gravitational force to pull in anything around it. So, <laughs> well, that's a relief. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, on the one hand, yes, <laughs> any <laughs> microscopic black holes could be produced. It still sounds pretty scary, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought the answer was gonna be a flat out no, there's no chance of that happening. <laughs> they're like, they're yeah. Like, if it does happen, (laughs) um, they're going to be so small that they won't have enough energy or matter to actually suck anything into it. And then the other interesting part is that even black holes out in space lose their own matter through um, a process that uh, Stephen Hawking um, discovered. It's called the Hawking radiation, um, which basically like as a a black hole sucks in energy or matter, it's using equals MC squared to basically convert one to the other. And then it ends up with two particles, like matter and antimatter, and it emits one out. And so it sucks in one particle and it loses, it basically converts one and loses one. And so black holes are constantly shrinking in nature. And so any black hole that can't attract new matter to it will just continuously shrink, evaporate and disappear because it'll be constantly emitting um, radiation And the smaller a black hole is, the faster it disappears and evaporates. And so even if we did find microscopic black holes at the Large Hadron Collider, they would be so small that they wouldn't even suck anything into it. And then they would just disappear and they would only exist for like a tiny moment of time. So they could even be missed at that point. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the only way you could even detect that it was there to begin with is detecting what it's creating as it decays, which is radiation. So it's really nothing to be afraid of, although it does. <laughs> <definitely be.
1: laughs> yeah. Well, that's a relief though. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, so, so
0: even if one tiny microscopic one popped up next to a scientist, that's not going to suck him in, <laughs> him or her in. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing um, that people were kind of freaking out about in July were these things called strangelets which i had never heard of before so this is never the- heard of that yeah i'm like it sounds strange strangelet <laughs> <laughs> um but those are purely hypothetical so they've never been proven and they're tiny tiny pieces of matter um basically that would be made up of hypothetically things called strange quarks that would be heavier and unstable, um, kind of like cousins to the normal quarks that make up the stable matter that we interact with. So even if they existed, they would be unstable and their electromagnetic charge would repel matter, not attract it. And so instead of combining with other stable substances and like attracting anything to it, they would repel and decay and So again, kind of even if these Strangelets were produced at the Large Hadron Collider, first of all, they've never been proven. There's no evidence to suspect that they exist or have been created. They wouldn't even wreak havoc anyway. They would just- They're like
1: chaotic roommates. They just want
0: to be left alone. (laughs) Chaotic roommates (laughs) that move out after being inside your house for five minutes.
1: (laughs) they're like goodbye <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah unstable weirdos who leave right away so and plus there's no evidence to even say that they were there or were created but I thought those are interesting like it's kind of a cool thing to think about and I think maybe we should put a pin in this for like if we do something on dark matter or dark energy maybe we could throw strangelets in there too
1: absolutely I'm way interested in these these uh, chaotic weirdos <laughs> <laughs> I know the weirder the better yeah
0: <laughs> yeah me too they i have, have not, a cool
1: I, name too i know it sounds
0: like something i like um like charlie in the chocolate factory i feel like he's got his oompa <laughs> Loompas, and then maybe there's some strangelets there <laughs>
1: <laughs> they would definitely be there <laughs> uh,
0: maybe that's what the chocolate river was made of strangelets <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so those ones again they're like Kind of skeptical that they even exist but if they do exist they wouldn't be harmful radiation is the big one so obviously we know radiation exists um and it's really unavoidable at any particle accelerator like the large Had- hadron collider um the collisions of the particles that we need in order to study you know where matter came from inevitably generate radiation. And so CERN uses kind of, you mentioned this before, but just to alleviate everyone's concerns about radiation, CERN uses both active and passive protection means. So they're monitoring radiation. They have tons of procedures in place to make sure that radiation exposure for their staff and any population around um, in and around Geneva is as low as possible and way below international limits that have been set for how much um, radiation dose you can be exposed to. And just to put everyone also at ease, everyone walking around on the surface of the planet is receiving doses of cosmic radiation from the sun. Um, Also your body, your human body is generating a very low dose of radiation also. (laughs) And so I feel like people hear that and they get scared and they think of like the worst case scenarios, but we live in and around radiation and generate radiation ourselves at at some degree. And so what CERN does is look at the international limits for how much of a non-ionizing or ionizing dose a person can get. And CERN stays well, 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 far below that limit. So they're super, they're paying very close attention to keeping everyone safe, even below what's required. Um, That is comforting. It is. And I guess just to put it in perspective, the amount of radiation that we get from natural radioactivity, like cosmic rays from the sun or what's around us in in our natural environment on earth is about 2,400 micro Sievert per year in Switzerland. So that's just a, a unit of measurement for radioactivity. And, um, the, that international standard for how much we receive naturally is 2,400 micro Siebert a year A round trip in, in, um, from Europe to Los Angeles on that, uh, flight. So from Europe to LA and back to Europe accounts for hundred micro seabird. The large Hadron collider tunnel is housed, um, like 300 feet under the surface of the earth. And that's deep enough that both stray radiation generated from their, their tests, their experiments, and any residual radioactivity is not even detectable at the surface. So it can't even permeate through. Wow. The yeah. And also air is pumped out of the tunnel and filtered before it reaches the surface as well. So really um you know studies have shown that any radioactivity released in the air contributes to some kind of dose for members of the public and if that is the case it has to be below the 10 microsievert per year level and so they really um you know care a lot about about making sure that there are um you know the filaments that they're using and their cabling um the the other kind of materials that could generate um the radiation doses at collision, all of that is very well understood. Those limits are very well understood and super controlled. So I think that's just another thing that you know people freak out about. Like, are you going to irradiate the public? And the answer is a resounding no. <laughs> they they <laughs> have a ton of precautions in place. <laughs> um, so really the only risk is to people in the tunnel, you know, performing the experiments and they tightly control that.
1: Yeah, actually, there is a lot of hype around it in terms of people freaking out. I've seen it in passing, just like the rest of the stuff. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, it's good to clear that up.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting too, just kind of to learn about how they how they deal with it, because it is definitely a hazard um, that, you know, someone might not consider uh, in a working environment. But yeah. Uh, so that was the last um, thing I had on my, my list of research to talk about, but I think it's been, you know, really interesting. You'd ask the question, what's the biggest thing that they've discovered? I would say besides the World Wide web, the biggest thing that the CERN has discovered is through the large Hadron Collider, like that the Higgs boson um, particle exists, which is pretty wild. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> right. I'm like, they're starting this run three. I'm like, Oh my goodness, what are they going to discover this time, right? It's it's so exciting.
1: It's uh, Yeah, it's an amazing time to be alive in science, for sure. All right, so it's time for weird but true facts. And I'm going to start this one off with, uh, since we were talking about mass, the sun contains over 99% of the mass in our galaxy.
0: Oh my gosh, 99%. hmm Wow. <laughs> that is wild um all right so for our second weird but true fact a full nasa spacesuit costs about 12 million dollars (laughs) wow
1: so cheap it's designer basically (laughs) right It is. really is for my fact it snows metal and rains acid on venus because venus is very metal it is (laughs) <laughs> the planet of love and metal. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. I
0: feel like we should do a whole episode on Venus or maybe just like our nearest planets. That is so interesting.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't, I mean, it's always associated with love and like pleasure and, and beautiful things, but really it's, it's metal at heart. Um. Okay. So for our
0: fourth weird, but true fact, a specific type of supernova are referred to as zombie stars because they can come back from from the dead. So when those types of stars die and become a white dwarf, in very specific circumstances, they create a gargantuan supernova, which sucks in so much material from neighboring stars that it comes back to life as a star. (laughs)
1: It's a vampiric star.
0: (laughs) Yes, or like a zombie.
1: The sunset on Mars is blue. So if we ever do relocate there, we'll have a blue sunset. I love that. Why is it blue? It says Mars has less than 1% of Earth's atmosphere. So it causes the sunset to look blue. Very cool. All
0: right, everyone, that's it for our second episode. We hope you enjoyed learning about um, CERN in Switzerland and especially the Large Hadron Collider and all of the cool stuff that it's telling us about our universe.
1: And banana pizza. pizza.
0: (laughs) If anyone's (laughs) tried that, please let us know. We we have to know. (laughs) We have to know. Is it good? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Thank
1: you, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Astro Please rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Astrophiles underscore
0: podcast at Kimberly1985 and at Mickey Negus.
1: We'll catch you next time, but until then, don't let gravity get you down.